Matthew's Gospel again, chapter 6. Matthew's Gospel in chapter 6 as we continue our studies on the Sermon on the Mount. And you remember the Lord Jesus has instructed us that our righteousnesses are to exceed the righteousnesses of the Pharisees. And we study that in depth and all the tape recordings, by the way, of all these studies we're breaking into the middle here. Maybe you haven't heard the rest of them and it would be good if you could hear something of the background of how we've got to where we are uh, this morning. But our righteousness is to be of a different kind to the Pharisees. It's to exceed it. And one of the ways in which it exceeds it is it because it is a heart righteousness. It is not an external righteousness, but it is a heart righteousness. Chapter 6 has been dealing with acts of righteousness that can be paralleled in the life of the Pharisees, and we've seen that week after week. We looked, first of all, at alms, almsgiving. Then we looked at prayer. The last study we did, we looked at the Lord's Prayer, and that is his blueprint and his plan for his disciples praying. And now we're going to look at fasting. These three things, almsgiving, prayer, and fasting, were three of the acts of righteousness that the Pharisees engaged in. But as we've been learning, there is a fine line between a righteous act and a hypocritical act. A righteous act and a hypocritical act. And we found that these acts of righteousness lend themselves very keenly to hypocrisy if we do not do them with the right heart. So let's look uh, this morning at this study in fasting. Verse 16. The Lord Jesus says, Moreover, when ye fast, be not as the hypocrites of a sad countenance, for they disfigure their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. Verily I say unto you, they have their reward. But thou, when thou fastest, anoint thine head and wash thy face, that thou appear not unto men to fast, but unto thy Father which is in secret, and thy Father which seeth in secret shall reward thee openly. Let us pray together. Our Father, as we come to thy word this morning, we are very conscious that these teachings and principles of the kingdom are very difficult for us to fulfill. Yet we thank thee that the Lord Jesus, when he left this scene of time, he told his disciples that he would not leave them orphans, but he would come to them, and he would send another to them, the comforter, the advocate, the strengthener, the Spirit of God who would empower them to do these things. And we pray that that same Comforter would have his way with us today. We pray, our Father, that he would have full control of us, that he, through grace, may be able to implement the Word of God, that we would not only be hearers of the Word, but doers of the same. And so, Lord, we need thee at this moment. I need thee to preach the Word, and the folk need thee to receive with meekness the engrafted Word of God. And we just pray that we would afresh, just now, give ourselves entirely into thy care again. And we pray, Spirit of the living God, fall afresh on us now. For Christ's sake. Amen. We've looked at why are you working for the Lord. We've also looked at why are you praying to the Lord. And now, if you like, we're looking at why are you fasting for the Lord. Or we could give the title to it, When You Fast. As I was studying again this week in this great sermon, the thought came to me it would be a lot easier just to get rid of this sermon altogether. 
It would be a lot easier for you and I to live the Christian life if we didn't have these principles to live up to. And I think perhaps in the subconscious of people's minds, that's why they like to explain away this sermon. They like to interpret it as not being for Christians today. And I've already gone into how this will have its full consummation in the eternal kingdom of the Lord Jesus Christ here on the earth in the millennial reign of Christ when we will be perfect as the saints of God and when we will live in righteousness and so on. But there are principles within this sermon that are applicable to the kingdom of God which is in our hearts today. But it would be easier just to get rid of it, wouldn't it? There are things that are unique within this sermon, and if we didn't have them, it would be so much easier to live this Christian life that we are called to. It certainly would be a great deal easier if the Lord had not taught us to fast. But yet he says to us in verse 16, Moreover, when ye fast. In verse 2 he said, When thou doest thine alms. Verse 5, When thou prayest. Verse 16, When ye fast. Robert Gouvet, in his writings on the Sermon on the Mount, uses a tremendous illustration as to how Christians have tried to explain away many of these great doctrines within a holy Christian life. He says this, The faith of Christ is like some ancient Gothic building devoted to religious services, which successive generations have altered to suit their own taste. Here, whitewashing marble, there, bricking up an arch, and yonder, plastering up a window. Hence, he who will study the words of Christ and his apostles not infrequently comes upon some truth or precept long obstructed and lost out of sight. And he stands delighted like one who finds some beautiful, long, desolate chamber. Down through the years, there are many spiritual principles and spiritual truths that the church has chosen in its great wisdom to disregard, to put to the side. And all of a sudden, someone reading the word of God finds that the Lord Jesus says, when ye fast, and when you discover such a truth as this that has been laid aside generally, it, it is revolutionary. It is like a wonderful chamber in a house that has been lost for hundreds of years. And here and there, down the ages of the church, there have been additions and subtractions of the truth. And as we look at the subject of fasting as our Lord addresses to it here in this sermon, it might conjure up in your mind and your heart these questions, well, is fasting, is that not for Catholics, Roman Catholics? Is that not a monastic thing? Is that not the thing that the Muslims are doing at the moment in the month of Ramadan? Is that not something that is left to the Old Testament or to religious ritual? I address you to the Lord Jesus Christ's word. When ye fast, true fasting, not religious, false, ritualistic fasting, but true fasting in its essence is Christian because Christ taught it. If prayer is rare in the church today, fasting must be almost extinct. To a materialistic church and an age in which we can readily fulfill any appetite that we have, and indeed are encouraged by advertisements and by 
philosophies within schools and within universities and within society at large today, we are encouraged to do that, to satisfy every desire and every appetite that we have. To, to that kind of society, fasting is absolutely irrelevant. In fact, we are told by our modern Christian leaders that we have natural appetites and those natural appetites are given by God for us to fulfill. It is natural to eat, so why would you not eat? Why would you fast? And particularly in a church, a Western church today, that I more and more am growing to believe wants to be confirmed as normal and as spiritual and as made comfortable in their lukewarmness, fasting is an unnecessary, ancient, fanatical, overzealous extreme. It is perhaps in conservatism, if they haven't already doctrinally somersaulted it over it and explained it away, it's understood to be the act of spiritual Olympian, the spiritual giants within the church. It's not for the ordinary Christian. Now, let us clear away very quickly some of these objections that we've already heard. Some give biblical objections. They say, well, this is an Old Testament thing. And uh, we New Testament Christians in an age of grace are not meant to be practicing fasting. Or they say, the Lord Jesus was asked, why do your disciples not fast? As John the Baptist's disciples are taught to do. And the Lord Jesus said unto them, can the children of the bride chamber mourn as long as the bridegroom is with them? But the days will come when the bridegroom shall be taken from them and then they shall fast. The Lord said, well, I am with my people. I am with my disciples. Therefore, they don't need to fast now. But when I go, they will fast. And some scholars have interpreted this, that the disciples fasted in between the death of the Lord Jesus Christ and his ascension to heaven. That is when they fasted. But it doesn't refer to us today between the ascension of the Lord Jesus Christ and his return. They fasted between the cross and the resurrection when the Lord Jesus was taken from them. But when he appeared to them again and when he ascended unto heaven, there's no need anymore for fasting. Is it just an Old Testament thing? Is it a thing that has already been fulfilled in another dispensation? Well, no, it is not. For the teaching of the epistles must be ignored if you are to ignore fasting today. You have to ignore the church at Antioch who commanded Barnabas and Saul to the work of God. And it says in Acts 13, when they had fasted and prayed and laid their hands on them, they sent them away. Acts 14 the elders commanded workers, and they fasted and they prayed. Second Corinthians 6, verse 5, Paul says that he was in stripes. He was in imprisonments, in tumults, in labors, in watchings, and in fastings often. Second Corinthians eleven twenty seven, he says again, he was in weariness, painfulness, in watchings often, in hunger and thirst, in fastings often, in cold and in nakedness. Can I just say to you, as I've been studying the Word of God in these recent weeks, it never ceases to amaze me the interpretive lengths to which men will go to exonerate themselves from their God-given responsibility. They will do anything but obey the Word of God. And these are men who, who say that they preach the Word of God. Men who say that they are fundamental, standing up for the principles of the Word of God. But when something doesn't suit them, they do all sorts of somersaults to get around. 
Yet, in these words of our Lord again, one thing that the Lord does not do is teach us to fast. Why? Because he assumes that we are doing it. When ye fast, when ye pray, when ye give alms. Now let me say this. There are no commands within the New Testament to fast. And I believe that is not, there are no principles of fasting in the New Testament, but there is no specific direct command. And I believe that that is the wisdom of the Holy Spirit, because there are some in our gathering here today who cannot fast for medical reasons and for various other reasons. So it is not commanded of a Christian who cannot do it. So don't get into bondage today if you're a diabetic or you have another dietary disorder and you can't fast. Don't worry about that. The Lord knows and he's made you that way. But yet there are principles right throughout Scripture. The question is not if you fast. The question here is how you fast. Like the previous teachings that we have studied, how primarily focuses on the motivation. When you're doing this, don't be doing it like the Pharisees. Your motivation has got to be right in your fasting. So the real question is not if you're fasting, but why you are fasting. Like praying, like almsgiving. Are you fasting for your own benefit before God or before men? Are you living for God or are you living for men? Are you living for the admiration of men or the commendation of God? What is your motivation for the righteous acts that you do? The Lord is saying, if I can paraphrase his words, you ought not to want to be seen fasting before men because it is useless if you do that. It is useless if you do praying, almsgiving, fasting to impress men. It defeats the purpose. Fasting to fast for the benefit of men is useless. And again, we see right throughout this sermon that the motivation is the key differentiating factor between a reward down here at the hands of men and a reward up there at the hand of God. Motivation. Do you fast for God's benefit? Don't fast for your own benefit or for men's benefit. And again, our Lord outlines the differences between outward religion and inward relationship. And in so doing, he teaches us how to fast. Before we go on any further, can I ask you, please, have you ever fasted in your life? I leave that one with you. But I can't imagine what it would be. In fact, I can't even imagine the possibility of a Christian going to heaven who had never prayed in all of his life. Let alone the tragedy of a Christian going to heaven without ever fasting. So we're going to hear from the Lord how we ought to fast. And even if you can't fast, there are principles here that apply to all righteous acts, all things that we do to the Lord. And the first is this. If you are inwardly starving, you will fast to show. If you are inwardly starving, you will fast to show off. Again, the Lord is saying, if you lack a heart relationship with me, you will crave an external reputation. No heart relation, you will want an external reputation. Now listen, this is not talking about public fasting. 
And I have to lay that down because all through the Old Testament there were public fasts. In the New Testament there are public fasts. We find the apostles spoke of fasting publicly together as the church and, and overseers fasting and so on. We have fasted publicly together for the Lord's blessing in this assembly. But again, what the Lord is addressing right throughout this sermon, as we've seen in recent weeks, are personal things. The thing of the self, the personal uh, spiritual life in Christ. Now, to address how to fast, we need to address the question, what is fast? Some believe it not just to be the abstention from food, but abstention perhaps from pleasure or from sleep, or from anything that would or could hinder communion between the soul and God. I have to say, biblically, I don't find that anywhere in the Scripture. I find that fasting, biblically, only ever applies to exemption from food. The word can be applied to other things, but that is not the biblical definition of it. And when you fast from food, you often fast from other things. One thing Paul said for prayer and fasting, that you were to fast from sexual relationships in marriage. But fasting primarily in the Word of God speaks of exemption for, from food for the, for the purpose of being before God and seeking God. I've given three definitions here today of what fasting is. You could give 101 definitions, but here's three categories. First, fasting is an expression of humbling oneself before God. It is to humble yourself before God. Now, here's the big question in the light of what the Pharisees were doing. How can you humble yourself before God by exalting yourself before men? It's impossible. The second thing that fasting is, is, is an expression of buffeting one's body, bringing your body into subjection. The reason being that physical laziness and sloth can be one of the greatest enemies in the Christian life that can steal our devotion quicker than anything else. And if the devil can't get to us morally by enticing us to sin, he can get to us through apathy and through inertia. And I believe that's what's happening in the church today. He says in your conscience, you cannot possibly get up this morning to pray. You can't get up this morning. You work hard all week. How can anybody, who does he think he is expecting you to get up in the morning to pray? God doesn't expect this of you. God doesn't expect you to fast. He knows that that's, that's higher than you're able. And fasting is to buffet the body, to bring the body into subjection. And the reason why a great deal of Christians today don't fast is because they don't want to bring their body into subjection. Quite happy the way things are. But the big question in light of this scripture is, how can you buffet your body if you're flaunting your body ostentatiously before men to show how great you are in spirituality? It's a contradiction. You can't humble yourself before God and then show off before men. You can't buffet your body and then portray how spiritual you are when the purpose of fasting is realizing how sinful you are and you're humbling yourself before God and trying to bring yourself into control and according to the Spirit. The third definition of fasting is it is the expression of seeking the grace of God. Seeking the grace of God. And the big question again in the light of the words of the Lord is, why would you focus on man if the purpose of your exercise is to get something from God and something that only God can give? 
The only possible reason you are focusing on man is to get something from man, and that is the praise of man. You see it? Oh, there are many definitions of fasting. Uh, certainly it's good for your health. It's good for self-discipline. It prepares us for coming before God. And also it preserves us from becoming slaves to life's habits. It preserves the ability to do without things in life and to appreciate things that we have all the time, all the more. But if we think of it like this, one of the greatest definitions of fasting that I have heard is prayer that we've been looking at in recent weeks is attaching yourself to God. But fasting is de detaching yourself from the earth. Can I give you my definition of fasting? It is when your passion for God is so great that you channel all the other natural passions into your passion for God. All other passions and appetites are set aside so that you can follow hard after God. You haven't got time for anything else. This is too important. That's fast. Now let me say that fasting is, is never just to deprive ourselves of what is natural. Never. God doesn't do that like the monks do it. He doesn't make us do things that are against nature. But it's in order to, for a short season, focus ourselves entirely on God, our appetites, our passions on Him. And therefore I hope you see that you cannot fast, but only with the heart. It is impossible to fast without the heart. The Jews fasted on the Day of Atonement. They fasted on other feast days. The Pharisees, we read in this passage, fasted twice in the week, on a Monday and on a Thursday. They were fasting, but they weren't fasting with the heart. They were inwardly starving, so they had to fast outwardly to show off. They had no relationship, so they craved their reputation. Look at verse 16. It says of these Pharisees, They were of a sad countenance, for they disfigured their faces, that they may appear unto men to fast. This is remarkable. Another translation says, They are gloomy and sour and dreary. They put on a dismal countenance, they make themselves unsightly in their faces. They're making themselves look glum. Making themselves dreary. They're, they're looking for pity from men and praise from those who they believe to be spiritual. Now let me say this. This does not just apply to fasting. These principles here apply to all of the gamut of spiritual life and spiritual truth. And if you have a close look but the way we behave today in the church of Jesus Christ, you can, you don't have to look very far to see that some men somehow equate spirituality with gloominess. Spirituality with glumness. Can I say to you today, if you have to look and sound miserable to be spiritual, there's something wrong with your Christianity. I shouldn't say this, but there are some people who call themselves Christian, and I have to do all in my power not to stick my tongue out of. You know what I mean? You know it's hypocrisy. 
You know it's facade. You know it's the outward and not the inward. And as Jeremy Taylor said, men hang out a sign of the devil to prove there is an angel within. They wear sad countenances and look tremendously severe in order to prove that they are holy. They hang out the sign of the devil to show that there's an angel inside. These Pharisees used things to speak of abasement. They probably anointed their head with ashes. They probably didn't shave or didn't wash and wore old clothing. And they're using these things to show that, that they're self-righteous. They're proclaiming their own holiness. And we can, as Christians, do exactly the same things today. Let me give you a couple of examples. Years ago, people used, when they come to church, put on their Sunday best. They did it out of respect for God, didn't they? I believe they did, at least. But I think eventually what happened was the quality of the clothes became more important than their reverence toward God. The real motivation, the real reason why they came to church in their Sunday best was overtaken by a competition to look better than others. To dress better than their neighbor. And then our young people come in in jeans and in t-shirts and we tell them off. Well, what are you coming in like this? I'll tell you why some of them are coming in like this. Because they can see through the facade of competition. Now, let me declare clearly what I am saying. I still believe that you come to worship God clean, tidy, and as best you can. And let me encourage you young people to do that. Don't let the standards drop. But let me ask you this. You people that do come in your Sunday best, our young people may have rejected the clothes contest. Have you? This is deadly. I reject a casual approach to God and the casual nature of dress and worship. But have we gone to the other extreme? The young people go to the wrong extreme. They throw the baby out with the bathwater. They say, oh, well, the Lord only looks in the heart and the Lord only does look in the heart. But that doesn't mean you just can come to God anyway. But what about you? Do you come with the outward facade of, of the Sunday best? What are your motives? Come on. Take the head covering, for instance. And I want to declare publicly that I believe that 1 Corinthians 11 teaches the head covering for today in this dispensation. If God spares me, eventually I'll cover it in the ministry of the Word of God. But one of the reasons for the head covering, what is it? One of the reasons, as 1 Corinthians 11 teaches us, is to cover the glory of the woman's hair. What do we do? We cover the glory of the woman's hair with the glory of the ten-gallon hat. So people no longer see the glory of our hair, but they see the glory of our hat. I think that's why Paul said in 1 Corinthians 11 that it was to be a veil. For it's not to be a fashion competition. You see, sometimes I wonder do we miss the point that we can do right things the wrong way. 
Isn't that what this passage teaches? Almsgiving is the right thing. Praying is the right thing. Fasting is the right thing. But are you doing the right thing in the right way? And the reason God is saying this, and you might be sitting thinking, oh, he's crossed the line this morning. Let me tell you this. If I've crossed the line this morning, it's because the Lord Jesus crossed the line in the Sermon on the Mount. For pride is abhorrent to God. But the greatest pride that is abhorrent to God is religious pride. Hypocrisy robs us of reality. And so we substitute reality with our reputation. Reputation instead of character. Mere words instead of true prayer. Money instead of devotion and a heart given over to God. No wonder the Lord compared them to whited tombs and graves and sepulchres that were clean on the outside and looked well on the outside but were dead men's bones inside. Not only does hypocrisy rob us of reality, but it robs us, and this is the ultimate thing the Lord is teaching, of rewards. If our lives are done for show, and for the mere praise of men, you can pray and you can give, and you can fast. You can pray, but there are no answers. You can fast, but the inner man shows no improvement. You can give, but your heart hasn't been given over anymore to God. The reason is, we can be inwardly starving. And we have to supplement it, showing off before men. When reputation becomes more important than character, you know what the Lord says? You have become a hypocrite. Well, secondly and finally, if you are inwardly satisfied, you fast in secret. If you're inwardly starving, you have to show off. But if you're inwardly satisfied, you fast in secret. In other words, if you have a heart relationship, all you will crave is God's recognition. All you will seek is God's eye, as Oswald Chambers says. God calls us to have a relationship between ourselves and God that our dearest friend on earth never would guess. What about that? Do you have such a relationship with God that the person beside you this morning doesn't even have a clue about it? But you haven't been boasting about it, what you've done, where you are, how long you pray. The only pretending Christian, the Lord Jesus says, is the ones who pretend they're not fasting when they are fasting. That's the only pretense the Lord wants. You don't come out with ashes on your head, hell shaven and all these scraggly clothes, but you come out, wash your face, anoint your head. This isn't literally, it's relative, it's figurative telling us that we are to act as if we are not doing these things when we are doing them. What the world should behold on our faces is not glum Christianity, but a bright and a happy exterior. God will observe the sorrowing, sad, mournful, selfless spirit. But we're not meant to parade it around to the world. That's what God sees in seek. Campbell Morgan said, O oh my life, thou should keep perpetual Lent within the secret chamber of thy being and everlasting Easter on thy face.
Lent inside, but Easter outside. The key to your fasting is your spirit. Oh, fast, please fast. The Lord will only bless you if you fast. But fast in the right way. Pray, please pray, and we need more prayer. But don't come to the prayer meeting with the wrong spirit. Don't come before God in the morning without the spirit. Don't give without the spirit of giving in your heart, having already given yourself before God. Because what counts is not your performance convincing to the eyes of an audience of men. It is the hypocrite that craves the spotlight. But it is the true believer in Christ, walking in faith in the Holy Ghost, that craves the light of the approval of the eyes of God. Verse 18 tells us that our motive should be to please God alone. It's hard, you know. It's hard. It's hard to preach this this morning. Maybe if I wanted to please you, I, I wouldn't have preached. And it's hard to please God rather than men. No matter what men say or what they do, God is saying you've got to cultivate a, a heart relationship in the secret place where no one else sees. It was well said by a man, the most important part of the Christian's life is the part that only God sees. How will you fare at the judgment seat when the secret things are open? Your secret prayer life, your secret almsgiving, your secret fasting. Guy King says, when a man tells how many hours he spent in prayer and talks of his self-denials for the gospel, I sometimes wonder whether his publishing these things robs them of some of their value. I tell you, that's what exactly what the Lord is saying. Publishing these things robs of value. But, like the rest of this sermon, really what the Lord is getting at is not that we do these things for other people, for men, but we do them for men, for self. That's the point. We are spectators of ourselves. We like to see ourselves in the good light. And the other people seeing us helps that. Bonhoeffer said, It is even more pernicious if I turn myself into a spectator of my own prayer performance. I can lay on a very nice shoe for myself, even in the privacy of my own room. Isn't that what we saw in almsgiving? Your left hand's not to know what your right hand's doing. How can that happen? In other words, you're not even to notice it. You're not to take notice of your own performance. What does the Word of God say? Seekest thou great things for thyself? Seek them not. In my life is it Christ and Christ alone. Some people need to learn that religion is an outward thing. True faith is an outward thing. James said that. True religion and undefiled before God and the Father is to visit the fathers and widows in their affliction and to keep himself unspotted from the world. We, some of us, need to realize that true faith is an outward thing. But what the message of this sermon is, true religion is an inward thing. And if you have the inward without the outward, or the outward without the inward, it is a counterfeit coin. 
You need the combination of the two sides of the coin. For that coin and that coin alone is the currency in heaven as well as with God on earth. Really what this sermon is asking us today is do you have a balanced Christian life? The question is does your inward reality reflect your outward portrayal? All I can do is ask you, does it? Our Father, we are suffering from the double-edged sword, for it cuts us. But we thank Thee that it wounds us, that it might heal us. And we pray, Lord, that this morning, that we would allow the Holy Spirit to analyze, to search us, to see if there be any wicked way and we can even have a wicked way and a good thing. And Lord, we say today, deliver us from hypocrisy. Deliver us from an outward reputation when inwardly we're starving. And satisfy us with thyself, we pray, that we will only crave the secret place where God alone can see. Amen.